Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Pat Leonard. He is a PhD student at Leiden University in the Netherlands, but he's originally from Tasmania. His background is in biotechnology, One Health, and infectious diseases. But we start this episode talking about his previous work with Tasmanian devils and their transmissible cancer, which is called the devil facial tumor disease, which we refer to as DFTD in here, and it's commonly referred to that in the literature as well. His work with DFTD introduced him to infectious and transmissible diseases and this concept called One Health. I had never heard of One Health, but it's basically an idea and also related organizations that environmental, human, and animal health are all interrelated and connected. And so people from a variety of backgrounds are working on all fronts towards a common goal. So I had a lot of fun talking to Pat. He was great. I asked a lot of questions about Tasmanian devils, um, and I really enjoyed this. So enjoy. My first question is, I would love to hear the story of how you went from wanting to be a chemist to end up working with Tasmanian devils. Sure. Okay. It's a bit of, it's a, bit of a story, though, or a long one, I should say. Um, so I always kind of wanted to, to go into the medical field a bit. I didn't really want to be a doctor and, or, an, or a nurse or anything, but my grandfather was a radiologist and, and worked in nuclear medicine. And, um, and I was always kind of good at chemistry from high school. And uh, I kind of just went the path of least resistance from high school straight through the college. Um, but at the time in medicine, there was kind of three pathways. It was like medical doctors, uh, as well as you know, nursing, paramedics. And, um, and then also we had the medical research course, which was a combination biotechnology and medical research. Just makes for a very long degree name. Um, and you could do a chemistry specialization in that. So I thought, okay, that's cool. I could do some cancer research or something. I didn't really have any idea at that point, but I decided to, to buckle down and go on a, a chemistry route from there as a major. And about halfway through the undergrad course, I, um, I realized that was a huge mistake and because I absolutely hate looking at chemistry spectra. Um, I'm sure you know, it entertains a lot of other, of other chemists, but it's not really my bag. Uh, so... I switched up and moved over to uh, to neurobiology. You can sort of switch your major quite easily with this degree, and um, and I did a bit of volunteering in a, in a lab looking at Alzheimer's. Um, of course, at that time I was new to the lab, had no idea what I was doing. So essentially, just cleaning up the lab and making sure making it presentable, and getting to look at all the scientists going like, "Oh, you do some really cool stuff." Um, and uh, and then after that, I decided that that wasn't quite what I wanted to do either. And I had the opportunity to do an undergraduate research program uh, kind of thing, like a six weeks course. Uh, and one of the projects offered was with the Tasmanian Devil Facial Tumor Disease Research Group, which I'm sure we can talk a little bit about. I think you've had, uh, you had uh, Ingrid Albion on before, who's talked a little bit about DFTD as well. So I won't, we won't have to get too into that, but um, I, I joined up with that. And as soon as I got into the lab, I, I found that that was what I liked, uh, this sort of comparative immunology, uh, looking at what's in humans and mice and trying to translate that across to, to species outside that we really don't know that much about. That was, uh, that was what really captivated me. From everything I learned from Ingrid, I mean, Tasmanian devils seem very charismatic and like that would probably suck me into, so. Yeah, exactly. They are absolutely adorable and, uh, and that will always reel you into the research project. Mm -hmm. It helps. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, sorry, I should have, stre should have stressed before. I did all this in, in where I'm from, Tasmania, Australia, you know, little island off the of the southeast of Australia, um, and where I was I was born and raised there. So, I, and uh, after getting a bit of experience uh, around the lab, I, I really still liked working with DFTD, um, and we essentially we designed a system to to look at different well. There's not that many diagnostics that you can use in the devil because it's uh, well, it's it's a marsupial, and there's not that many tools that are designed to be able to look at a cancer in a marsupial. Uh, so we essentially had to start from scratch and make up a system that where we could recognize certain molecules that were being expressed by the cancer, um, and also potentially make some therapeutics at the same time. So make some molecules like cytokines and stuff and, and see if that would affect the cancer in some way and that was where the bulk of my research really was, was focused at the time um, i also stuck around there and did my honors but that was looking into some other receptors and stuff after we'd sort of set up this this system to to look at the, these uh, receptor and ligand interactions so the molecules that are being expressed on the cancer and on the immune cells of the devil, how they're interacting, and is it similar to humans and mice? And can we exploit that to you know kill the cancer? So yeah, it's a little bit more molecular than uh, I think I than Ingrid's stuff might have been, but uh, yeah, but I mean it uh, takes all types, right? Like oh exactly, you need yeah. both. <laughs> Yeah, no, we'd be hopeless without all the ecologists and stuff doing doing so much work around uh, around Tasmania as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why STEM is so great because there's so many different sides to every question, really. Yeah, precisely. Yep. I want to real quick just talk about Tasmanian devils. So the facial tumor disease isn't it comes or it's like transmitted through them biting each other, right? Which is like a normal behavior for the devils. Like this is just a thing that they do. And then yes. they transmit the disease to each other and it like forms in their, in their face. That's why it's called that. Um, but I don't remember what Ingrid told me about like if it started from one and then it just sort of like spread through the population there or like what happened or like what the status is these days. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Mm -hmm. this, this is where there's a bit of a, a, a um, oh, I'm trying to think of the right analogy. Uh, well, anyway, the, the, the worm turns or, or something, <laughs> something like that. Uh, essentially, so the, the original DFTD was identified in about 1996 in the sort of northeast pocket of uh, Tasmania. And it was just noticed by a wildlife photographer who took a snapshot and was like, that looks a bit funky. <laughs> and, um, and since then, uh, it's progressively spread uh, down through the population uh, towards the, the south and the and the western portions of, the, of Tasmania, and um, and really what it is, it's just a big ulcerating tumor that we find around the face, um, and it seemed to have a common origin. So when they look at the, the carrier type, you know, comparing chromosomes between all the different cancer cells, they found oh, it's, it's all kind of similar between the the cancers, but um, not it's not similar to the host at all. And I think when they tallied it all up, it was something like 170,000 somatic mutations, which is just, that's genes going crazy all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when they finally did like the, the, the full genome analysis of the, of the cancer. So that's, that's step one. <laughs> so can, cancer um, takes off and spreads throughout uh, Tasmania um, because the devils are, are pretty much naive to it. It's like a novel pathogen or something being introduced into the population. 
Um, and so that spread like wildfire. Now we have a population decline of roughly, I think the last estimate was 80% um, or 77, something specific like that. And uh, there's still some general pockets that are surviving. But in about 2015, late 2015, uh, we identified another cancer that, I mean, it grossly looks the same. It's still, but it was, it was popping up where it wasn't really found before. So need to do a bit of typing, see if it, how it compares, you know, uh, we do like typical MHC typing to, to try to see if it expresses MHC. It's just sort of our verification, uh, as well as one of our diagnostic markers, which is periaxin. Um, that's because the, the cell comes from a Schwann cell. We knew that from doing some transcriptomics and, and uh, Cesar Tovar, who works at the Menzies as well, I think he, he identified that periaxin was a marker for it. And so it's a, it's a nerve cell uh, expressed marker. And we, could, we just use that and MHC typically to, to type them at the time. And in these uh, tumors, we actually found that MHC was not being downregulated like it was in the other tumors. So in typically in DFTD, uh, MHC is sort of secreted away because if the cancer expresses MHC, it's presenting all this protein from inside the cell uh, that then the immune cells can just come up and be like, that's not normal and then kill a cancer cell. So the cancer hides by suppressing this MHC expression really. But in this new strain, they were actually expressing MHC and sort of the logical, like uh, the contradiction there, it's like, well, okay, so how is the cancer developing and, uh, and such, but we looked further into it. And when they were comparing the, the chromosomes again, um, what one thing that stood out was that it had a Y chromosome. And that's particularly important because the other cancer didn't have a Y chromosome. So it had come from a female devil originally. And this one seems to have come from a male. So now we have two circulating strains of DFT. So DFT1 and DFT2. Yep. And, uh, and they're both, you know, they have these polarizing characteristics. One's got MHC, one doesn't. Yeah. And, uh, but they do seem to express a lot of other sort of similar Im immune suppressing elements. So a lot, a lot of cytokines and immune checkpoints, which is what I'm particularly interested in. Okay, that's fascinating. But I have one uh, potentially ridiculous question. What is MHC? Sorry, yes, uh, the, it's the major histocompatibility complex, or at least the, the devil's version of that. Um, so is MHC is just, um, it's essentially a protein that is expressed on every cell in your body, except for like red blood cells. Um, and it just presents protein to the outside of the cell from inside of the, the cell, just endogenous protein, sort of self-identifying protein. Um, and so then immune cells can come up and just be like, ah, oh, we recognize that protein. We've seen that a million times before. So we're not going to kill you. You're fine. But then if you have you know, a cancer, then sometimes proteins get mutated. They'll present a new protein. The cancer, the, then the immune cells can come over and be like, oh, that's, that's weird. We, we can't have that around here. And they, they kill the cell. That's yeah. cool. It's like an ID badge or security clearance or something. Yeah, I, I call it like the passport of the cell. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, that's cool. Poor Tasmanian devils having such a rough go of it. They, they really do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's interesting that you ended up like sort of randomly working with such like an iconic wildlife species. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, focusing on their, their tumor disease. 
Um, yeah, a slightly different angle than the, yeah. than the up close and personal cuddly cuddly little ones that I used to like uh, watching from afar. Yeah, but it's a big ordeal because like it's a fatal disease, and so you know if it kills all the devils, then we have no more. And so, what good is ecology if we can't save them from their yeah, disease? Yeah, that's that's so, the problem. You know, yeah, this is why and I think, I think there was just a paper out this uh, this last but what well, yeah last year now. Sorry, getting adjusted to the the time. Um, I think it was last year they they published a, a paper um, declaring that it's now officially endemic from its transmission patterns. So unless we can get a proper vaccine that can be used and employed rapidly throughout throughout the whole population, it's just going to keep circulating. Yeah, that's got to be really tough to develop something like that because I mean, on the whole, there aren't that many marsupial species, just in general. Um, and I mean, I'm sure there is research, but I can't imagine there's like as much research as like mammal research, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, compared be... to like human cancer. Yeah, there's not that not really that much going on in terms of marsupial cancers. Right, <laughs> yeah. yeah, this so is a random um, question yeah. and you may not know, Nothing. but is there like other marsupial species that have like a cancer? I mean, that you may not know that it's kind of random. Marsupials, not so much. I mean, we can talk about the different types of contagious tumor that we know. Um, okay, like, we'll I'm talk about that. I can, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, so we we know that there is um, CTVT, and that's canine um, uh, transmissible venereal tumor, uh, and that's in dogs, in canine, obviously. Uh, and it's uh, that's like one of the most ancestral lines of transmissible cancer that we know of, uh, harking back to ancient Egypt. Um, and so it doesn't doesn't kill the, the dogs though. Typically, it just typically regresses after a time. And so it's fine. And there's, again, not much research going into that either. Um, and so that's, that's one lineage that we know of, and it's often used to compare against the devils. Uh, there's one in uh, the Syrian golden hamster, which has surprisingly little research gone into it because there's, a, there's a, a lot of, you know, that's, that's the foundation of a lot of biomedical research is, is hamster studies, or at least the, the cells that we use for, in, the, in the lab for that sort of stuff. Um, and that's Syrian hamster. Oh, yes. And the, the latest one is a sort of a transmissible leukemia uh, that is spread between bivalves. Um, moreover, in, in your direction, in the US, um, it's, yeah, so it's spread uh, between soft-shell clams. And I think it's the only notable one that can actually be spread between species now as well because they just release the cells to the environment and they're filter feeders. So they just pick up a cell and then it integrates and unfortunately they get leukemia. So it's yeah, really weird. <laughs> those are the major ones that we know of at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so like again, can, yeah, quite a spread. Are being transmissibles, not like the norm. So that's, it's kind of surprising to me that there's that many of them and there's like four or five that you just said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so, the world is weird. Yeah, so this work that you did with the um, Tasmanian tumor, facial tumor disease, it sounds like that led you down a path of, I don't know, something working related that, to that, but not with devils, of course. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, certainly. So I, that, like, working with the devils really opened up that direction of, like, I, I want to look into comparative immunology. I want to find, you know, the secrets that are, you know, throughout nature that we're, we're not looking at at the moment. And, uh, and see what we can use to both help ourselves and, and bring back to them as well. And you know, the key example is, you know, how can we cure the, the devil's cancer and uh, using the therapeutics that we already use? Uh, just sort of 
devilized or demonized, I, I suppose would be the, the most appropriate <laughs> term there. Um, but yeah, so that that really opened up the doors to like the idea of One Health to me, um, which was always sort of thrown around in the lab, like the idea of human uh, and, um, and animal health and welfare being, you know, intertwined essentially, um, as well as environmental health, I should say, as well, and, and the, the health of plants all being intertwined and you know if you need to be able to tackle any problem in in this health paradigm you need to be able to come at it from multiple facets and and possibly both in humans and animals and and in plants as well depending on the illness and that sort of really opened it up and and after i was sort of working with the devils a bit i didn't quite want to jump into a phd straight away and uh and i kind of wanted to spread my wings a little bit and and branch out and look at some other diseases and uh, and consider one health a little bit more so i i uh, branched out of that as far as i could and managed to uh, get into an uh, erasmus mundus joint master's degree based in europe so that was um, essentially doing a semester in france a semester in spain and a semester in scotland and then a research project after that where i stayed in scotland but uh, two semesters scotland and uh, yeah, so that really allowed us to look at the, the spread of sort of disease across well Western Europe mostly, but looking at uh, you know being able to talk with researchers who were doing work, work all over the world and were sort of the, the the main people in their field, you know, in terms of like malaria um, vaccine trials and, and things like that, really opened up and being able to talk with these professionals and network with this class where we had about I think it was sixteen nationalities all in the one room together for two years. It was just a really good experience overall and uh, and allowed me to sort of get my roots across Europe as well. So I, I could always come back and uh, and uh, and buckle in, buckle down where I wanted to. And uh, and through that, I managed to um, well, despite Corona, which uh, sort of took my research project and scrapped it into tiny bits. Um, I, on the way back to Australia uh, during the pandemic, I applied for a PhD again in One Health. Um, and that is how I come to be here back in the Netherlands after jumping on another plane to come back. I'm still looking at, um, I'm looking at a, a bit more of a lateral One Health issue, so antimicrobial resistance. Um, so I look at new therapeutics and see how we can sort of tweak them to induce more sort of response on the host side to stimulate the host to be able to prevent future infections, that kind of thing. That so sounds still really immunotherapy. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, this, I have a question. Is One Health like a concept and also an organization or am I just like taking that out of nowhere? It is more just a, a concept, okay. but there are lots of organizations that are sort of working in, in this field. So I'm, I'm part of the, the International Student One Health Alliance and the, the VP of Finance of their executive committee. Um, so that's just linking student organizations that want to get involved with One Health from you know, the different angles. Um, but there's also the One Health Commission, which is based in, in the US. Uh, there's a European task force, uh, a European joint program in One Health. Uh, yeah, and then yeah, there's also One Health Latin America. There's lots of, it depends where you are, but you can generally find sort of an overall grouping. Okay, yeah, that's cool. I asked because... I mean, I never heard of it. I mean, I've heard of like this idea, right? Like how everything's mm -hmm. intertwined and everything. That's like kind of a basic premise of ecology, I guess. But yeah, thinking about it from a health perspective rather than a connectedness perspective is interesting to me. Um, 
because it is all intertwined, like you said. Mm. Um, yeah, sorry, I was just curious. I just didn't know. I'd never heard of it. That's cool. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's been really fun to just sort of see the different disciplines getting involved. And more often than not, it's not just, you know, doctors and vets. It, it is a very veterinary focused. You get a lot of vets involved in this sort of stuff. But you're getting more and more engineers and stuff coming out of, out of the woodwork being like, I want to, you know, I want to you know, help against rabies. And I'm like, that's awesome. I don't know how we're going to do that. But, you know, that's, <laughs> that's up to, you know, everyone tackling their own problem and, um, and being able to help out where they can. Yeah, this kind of comes back to what we were talking about in the very beginning about like how it takes all types to solve a problem, right? Like maybe an engineer has a certain skill set that'll help versus a vet and maybe together they can fix something. Yeah, exactly. I can make a vaccine, but probably don't put it in my hands to go around vaccinating the devils because nothing's going to get jabbed. <laughs> right. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to do it either. <laughs> um also, the, the way you did your master's sounds so interesting, like moving places. And did y'all move like as a cohort, it sounds like? Yeah, so it was all, it was quite, quite an interesting two years all up in all, all in all. Um, but yeah, no, it was really fun. And, you know, you, you always had a group that you could, you know, you could associate with whenever you're in a new place, which particularly when you're in the middle of a tour, which was it's uh, the French region we were in. Um, and they speak the the most proficient French apparently in that in that region, and uh, which typically means the fastest. So trying to learn that uh, became quite difficult, but I still I still picked up a little bit. But always having the cohort that you could just be like, I have no idea. Does anyone know where the pharmacy is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's, it always helped. Yeah. Yeah, that would be useful in any like graduate school scenario, especially when you're moving countries every semester ish. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to lie. It can be quite stressful at times, like jumping around every six months. But um, yeah, no, it was still very much very quite. It was still quite valuable. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, it sounds really cool. It sounds way cooler than my graduate experience. I'm just saying. <laughs> so I didn't go anywhere cool like Europe. So tell me, can you tell me what you're working on now? And also, does your mug have a paper on it? <laughs> it, it does, actually. It is the paper that we got out of the, from the Devil Lab on the, the, the system that we set up, which actually, probably I'll, I'll push it this way, because this was a, um, a group called the Public Journal Club. You can find them on Twitter. Um, I think they run out of Mexico City. They essentially did a, a, a webinar with me and, me and the, um, the main author, Andy Fleece. Uh -huh. uh, and they did this little little infographic for that for for Twitter. So I've uh, I've nabbed that and then also got the paper on there. That's brilliant. <laughs> it's not a not a first author mug, but it's my first publication mug. So I was happy with that. I mean, that's still awesome. First author or not, it's a publication with your name on it. A lot of people can't yeah. say that, including myself. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, it, it, eventually, everyone gets there. Yeah, mine will be by accident, probably. <laughs> any rate that's all right you just it just has to be the accident on the right person's desk exactly yeah yeah so tell me about what you're doing now i'm curious so right now i've just started my phd since uh, october uh and i am based in at the moment leiden in the netherlands and i'm spending about a year and a half here uh working with the infectious diseases department and pulmonology uh developing sort of models and testing out uh, these new antimicrobial peptides that they've developed. So antimicrobial peptides, uh, a lot of them are, are quite familiar to some biologists like uh, cathelicidin, uh, beta defensins, and, uh, and 
they're, they're naturally expressed by the host cells. So by your skin, when you get bacterial infecting your system, your cells will upregulate these as sort of just a basic defense mechanism. And what the team has done is taken those and like looked at homologs across uh, different species, particularly like snakes and the like, and seen what is the most sort of conserved domain. So what can we chop off of this natural protein to make it more efficient and, uh, and to hopefully kill more bacteria and resistant bacteria specifically. And so they've got a huge library of those and I'm looking into its effect on the host cell and its capacity for them to be able to stimulate the host cells to like, prevent bacteria from colonizing them in the first place. As well as having, they, they do have an enhanced sort of just anti direct antibacterial effect as well. But yeah, we want to see if we can just use them as a sort of a pre-treatment. So for people who are predisposed to getting a bacterial infection, particularly in respiratory illnesses, but uh, also in, in skin. So we've got models of skin and respiratory epithelium that we're working in at the moment. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, being able to treat someone potentially before they get something because they're like predisposed to it would be really, like really great. <laughs> Yeah, particularly for something like cystic fibrosis or the like, where we pretty much know the main species that are going to colonize the lungs already. So if you can make a therapeutic that's going to prevent that and hopefully other species at the same time, that's that's the aim of the game, really. Seems like that approach would like really revolutionize a lot of medicine because there's a lot of things that just like don't have a lot of treatments or maybe it's more just like treating symptoms that we can't fix the actual illness you know pretty much and you get that a lot with nosocomial infections so hospital like um, inflicted infections um, implants that sort of thing where you have mrsa you know re uh, methicillin resistant staph aureus and that just colonizes everything and you can only throw so many drugs at it so we need something that works better and uh, and hopefully induces less resistance so that's that's the second half of the equation is does it work and then is it gonna just be another you know standover for the until the bacteria develop another resistance interesting yeah i don't know a lot about like you know the medical field in general which is massive by the way that's um, right neither do i oh no yeah so <laughs> All of this stuff like is just so interesting to me because I don't know hardly anything. <laughs> and so, yeah, it just seems like it would be so awesome and helpful and hopefully give people better health, you know. That's, that's the aim of the game ultimately, yeah, in whatever way you can. And that's, that's really what the masters gave to me was sort of just opening my eyes to this wider field of, mm -hmm. you know, it was great working in, in DFTD, but I was like, well, there's so many other illnesses that are still around and, um, you know, some that, some that we could cure just by, you know, being able to dispense medications in the right way and the right time. Um, but a lot of which just we don't and they're gathering resistance as we speak. So, you know, we, we just they just need to be tackled. And that's kind of why I guess that's why a lot of a lot of the diseases end up being thrown in the sort of neglected tropical disease basket at the moment. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's easy to slap that label on it. So, that, you know, it makes it more impactful. Yeah. Yeah, and also it seems just like things change so quickly, like evidenced by the pandemic we're currently in. Like that came like out of one place and has spread all over and now there's a new strain and it's only been a year and it's just amazing how quickly to me like that things can change and that's just an example of that. Precisely, <laughs> yeah.
I know we're not we're not supposed to call it the 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 British virus at the moment, but I do find that um, an interesting flip flip of the coin. Oh, that's funny. I hadn't he- actually heard anybody call it that. Just like the strain found in the UK, which has now been found here in the US and I don't know where else. Um, yeah, oh, it's it's here in the Netherlands too. It's just circulating. Yeah. And they were they were throwing around the idea that they could, uh, you know, just stop stop flight, flights from the UK, but it's already established. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's probably too late for that. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. shutting the barn door when the horses are already gone. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you want to do? Like, what's your goal? Like when you're finished with your PhD, whenever the pandemic lets you finish that. Um, yeah. Like, what do yeah, you we'll do? see. We'll see how delayed I end up in the, in the, in the meantime. But um, uh, I think I'd like to stay in this sort of sector, looking into you know, immunotherapeutics, um, you know, ways that we can influence inflammation and, uh, and the different factors of that, because I think that, you know, that bleeds back into again, wildlife diseases and such. Um, and if you can find, if you can develop good immuno, immuno, ugh, good immunotherapeutics in any species, then I think you can, the potential for translation is just getting better and better. And, you know, using systems like we developed, um, hopefully we can, you know, take advantage of these, all these new developments that are, you know, firing off every, every month. Um, we can take advantage of those and be able to translate these therapies and you know, hopefully cure something like a now endemic DFDD. Yeah, but, um, I, I'd like awesome. to stay in research. I think, yeah, yeah, H- half research, half teaching was the was the ideal. I think always. I don't know how how likely that scenario is given uh, the current job market, but uh, that was always the ideal. Yeah, I mean that's. I don't want to teach, but that sounds like a even split, which would be nice. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I think it, it's, it's always going to tilt somewhat, but um, yeah, I, I, I would take anything sort of working in research as long as I had, you know, yeah, enough resources to fall back on in the meantime. Right, yeah, yeah. And I'm a lab rat at the end of the day. You know, <laughs> I, I want to be at the workbench. That's fair. I think we all have like our happy spot of where we like to do work the most, right? Like I'm a field mm-hmm. work person. That is my work, like sweet spot. I don't even know if this is a decision you'd have to make. Like, do you have to choose between working on like human diseases and wildlife diseases, or can you work on both? Like, do you even need to make a choice? I think mm, it depends. It depends on what angle you're taking it. Like, I'm I'm looking in at therapeutics to work against typically a human disease, where like the, in the context we're talking about it and modeling it for. So, um, we de- developing therapeutics to work on skin and lungs. And as far as that works, I think you can extrapolate that to other animals pretty rapidly. It's just being able to you develop those same models in that sort of system. So, I mean, I, I'm of the, the sort of thought that if you give me some tissue from an animal, I'll immortalize it for you and quickly just bang up a model and, and we'll go from there. It's not as easy as it sounds, but I'll have a fair crack at it anyway. Yeah, sure. And I, think, I think it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I was just curious, like if you had to pick a box or if like you could potentially do either or, you know, it sounds like some of the techniques would be similar. Um, just the species would be different. Yeah. If I had to do either or, I think I would like to stay with animals and wildlife because I find that somewhat more entertaining. It feels less clinical than having to deal with the, the human side of the equation. And there's, you know, there's a reason I didn't become a doctor. I, I don't like the, the clinical side, even though he says that we're wanting to work in a lab every day. But um, 
Yeah, I, I much prefer thinking about the the wildlife side of the equation and how you can, the, again, the comparative immunology, being able to just like look at genes amongst 20 different species and be like, oh, cool, it's conserved. That means we could potentially use it for something or it's going to potentially be used for this and then being able to just find that out. And does it work the same as humans and mice? Yeah, I think that sounds cool. And as my background is also in wildlife, I personally would appeal, that would appeal to me as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, seeing as we're on, on pandemic talk, I guess we could talk about like any interesting thing that I find. Have your hobbies changed significantly since you've like been in lockdown or since, since the pandemic took over? Have you kept up with your old hobbies that you used to keep up with? Or have you taken on like 10 new hobbies like I have? Okay, well, I'll answer and then you can go. Um, so in 2020, I'm normally like a fairly avid reader. I normally read 90 to 100 books a year, which is, that's like, I mean, I read fast and that's just like my coping mechanism apparently because I spent most of 2020 with my nose in a book pretending like the world wasn't happening. And so I ended up reading like 138 books or something in 2020, which is like massively different than 100, you know? which is a hundred, at least like kind of seems manageable to a week. Like if they're a 30% not swing. That's <laughs> yeah. So, decent, yeah. so I spent most of 2020 avoiding reality, apparently. Um, That's right. And I think I, we're all entitled to do the same. Yeah. And I took up what well, I had started before I started quilting. And so I'm, I've made a bunch of quilts then because I had more time. I think that's probably the main thing. You know, I run, um, yeah, I've done all of that still. I haven't really picked up anything new, but what about you? You answer your own question. Okay, okay. Turn, turn the mic around to me. Well, I've not read anywhere near that amount of books. I don't think ever over the... I, I couldn't even match that in a decade, I don't think. Um, yeah, I, I, it's mostly been, you know, like fitness stuff. So I started, I started taking up daily running, all that sort of thing. Did a little bit of yoga, not quite for me, but you, know, I, you have to put your toe in the water and see, see what temperature it is um and getting into gardening and stuff you've got, you've got my little upside down hyacinth up there um yeah and what else did i do i'm just because it's the netherlands so i'm naturally just biking everywhere <laughs> whether it's uh, two minutes or you know get going down to the hague for about an hour that kind of thing that that's most of it and at the moment yeah i've been thinking about picking up a bit of painting it's going to be woeful, but uh, I'm going to give it a shot anyway. Yeah, but if it makes you happy and you enjoy it, then it doesn't matter what the outcome is, right? It's the process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Um, yeah, and don't worry about having read not that many books because the amount of books I read is bonkers. So what, if I count the papers I read, it's probably still not that amount, but. <laughs> Why? Well, it's probably harder reading for sure. <laughs> Definitely, definitely slower on my end, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it takes forever to read a scientific paper, for, at least for me. I mean, not that I've done it intensely for years, but like, I always would just like read it in sections. Like I'd find a pile of papers and I would read all the results. And then, all right, which results are relevant to me? Now I'll go read their methods, and like make <laughs> piles of papers, which is probably not the most uh, effective way to do that. That's all right. That's why we invented highlighters and post-it notes. Yeah, I saw I told somebody recently that uh, the only way I got out of grad school was like sheer willpower and post-it notes. <laughs> so, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I just have that all cordoned off in my like Mendeley library as just like pre-PhD stuff all over here. Yeah, 
yeah, yeah. Um, so I have a sort of logistical question, I guess. So for your master's, so like I had to write a thesis. Is that what you had to do? Or was like, how does the master's work the way you did it? Yeah. So it was technically kind of more of a taught master's okay. because three, three semesters taught and then one as a research project. So I mean, negotiating the research projects was a whole ordeal in and of itself, particularly because, well, it was split between mainland Europe and the UK during Brexit. So naturally all the complications came out of the woodwork. Um, but yeah, so uh, they asked maybe, I think it was in, uh, when would it been? Anyway, at the start of the second year, essentially, they sent around a notice to all the different institutes that they're affiliated with. And, you know, you could seek out your own, like, research supervisor if you wanted. It just had to be, you know, have the One Health theme or the, the it had to be specifically about infectious diseases or developing, in my case. I was, I was looking at something a little bit more lateral at that time as well. Um, I was looking at building an immune gene profile in mesenchymal stem cells from pigs. So another, another twist in the tale of my, of my research background. Um, didn't get quite all the way to, to, com to compiling it, but uh, that would have been nice to have in the back end. But uh, yeah, essentially, we just organized it that way. I just stuck around in Scotland, A, because I love Scotland, um, and B, uh, working at the Roslyn Institute. I'm not sure if you're familiar. It's the place where they first cloned Dolly the sheep. Yeah, the, fir the first mammalian uh, cloning. You know, so it's got, got that sort of name brand recognition. I was like, oh, I could stick around here for a little bit. And, um, and I did, and it was easier for the visas as well, because otherwise I was going to have to negotiate more visas with Spain and stuff. And it was, yeah, I, I wasn't stepping back, in, back into that basket for sure. Yeah, that's fair. I asked that question because the way education works in different countries is different. And so I feel like it might be interesting just to hear how everybody's programs work. Um, yeah, so mine was officially coordinated through France, which was interesting coming from the Australian system. Um, but it wasn't, you know, particularly different. It was still, we had to do the thesis, um, basic, you know, marking for each of, each of the different core units. The teaching structures and stuff were obviously have some interesting differences. Um, but yeah, no, it was overall much, much the same. So my friends that are in the Netherlands, he did his PhD in Australia mm -hmm. and did his master's in the US. You know, and those two systems are vastly different. If he had done his PhD in the US, it'd be like five years. And then I think it was three-ish years in Australia. And then you That's moved- That's the big paradigm. You are, yeah, you are correct there with the PhD. So yeah. how, wait, did, cause you finished your PhD now, yes? No, my master's, which took me three oh, okay. years. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Cause for me, yeah. PhD was always sort of three and a half years was the idea from um, at least from the Australian system. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then I came over to Europe and it's kind of like, yeah, three, three to four. So my one in, because it's planned between Leiden and Scotland mm -hmm. um, is four years all up. So I finish here in like March, 2022. And then I go back over to Scotland. Okay. That's still really manageable, four years. Like thinking about like minimum of five is daunting. Mm, yeah. I mean, I've had, I've had a, a fair bit of time during the whole pandemic and stuff to be able to like, okay, I'm going to do this year, this year, then like, in, like plotting out all the different stages like month to month. But, um, but then naturally everything is going to get delayed because of everything at the moment. Right. At, at the moment we're going through a, like we're, we're allowed back in the lab 
here in the Netherlands, but we're also going through a shortage of plastics from because all of them have to be used for diagnostics. Um, so now we have to go through the like several auditing systems for being able to order like pipette tips and stuff like that. And it's hell in a handbasket. But uh, that's how that's I feel a, about that's a lot. What of applying things. for extra funds is for anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like in addition to regular science complications, then we have political complications and pandemic complications and everything else. And so, yeah. oh, gosh, this is make everything way more complicated. Yes, well, I'm not sure if, you, if you've been too up on the news or even if it is getting covered in international news, but the Netherlands government just resigned over a, a different uh, unrelated scandal. Um, but a lot of people are saying that it might actually help them with their COVID management because everything has to be done locally now. All the health centers are going to have to take care of it. So they're probably going to be better than the government coordinating it. Interesting. No, I hadn't heard that. I've been too concerned here in my own little bubble of like them telling us because the, the, by the time this episode comes out, this will be long done. But like the presidential inauguration here in the U.S. is next week. And they're like, no field work don't go in public, don't go to the building just in case, because there's like all this unrest and I don't know, terrorist Potential thoughts. for more unrest, yeah. Like, mm. Unrest is like the nicest word for it. Uh, yeah, so it's just like, okay, but I have field work I need to do and the weather's actually going to be nice, except I can't because it's a political dumpster fire right now. <laughs> just The joy of it all. It's so ridiculous this last year and a half. Um, yeah, so everything's coming up Scotland today because I had another recording session earlier um, with a scientist who's in Scotland. This is just, just Scotland Saturday over here. Um, I didn't know that Dolly the sheep, that all that happened in Scotland. Like I knew it happened, but I don't think I knew where. That's really cool. It's one of those things, like the more I, the more I dig into Scottish history, the more I'm just like, oh, there's so much medis medical history here. Like you can go to the, the surgeon's hall, which is like the big anatomical like thing there. And even then, like you're only getting half the history, but then you've got all things like Burke and Hare stealing the corpses and all that sort of stuff that, are, are you familiar with that? No, do what now? Oh, it was, it was the, a big sort of when they initially started to do grave robbing so that they could get anatomical specimens to teach medical students. So it, it naturally became a bit of an industry. Naturally. <laughs> mm. So that's, that's why you go to the, uh, the old graveyard um, in the city centre and there's like cages over the graves and stuff that people used to put there to stop people from stealing their bones and, and such. Oh my god, that's fascinating. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you if you ever do get the chance, just just walk just walking around Edinburgh is um, there's a lot of just the city is kind of a graveyard, and I mean that with the nicest respects. <laughs> yeah, Edinburgh is wild. I had a great time there. I mean, I wasn't there for very long, and I've been there twice now, but like neither time for very long. Just like you know, milling about. Uh, Scotland's amazing in all the ways. <laughs> um. Okay, so I have a question. Do you think, I mean, you spend a lot of time in Europe lately, but you know, you're not from there. Do you think you want to stay there or go back to Tasmania or Australia or a new place? I, I think eventually I'll make my way back to Australia. I do, you know, my, my heart bleeds the, the green and gold, but um, I'm, I'm not quite sure when. I think it'd be nice to go back as a postdoc and, uh, and yeah, make, make my, um, yeah, make, stake my, my, What's the expression I'm looking for there? <laughs> Plant my feet in the ground there. Anyway, um, yeah, that'd be nice. I don't think I'd go back to Tasmania. Like it's 
I like to go back to visit family. Um, it's a great place to just be able to, you know, you can go from the beach to the mountain in 15 minutes. It's absolutely fantastic. But um, the job market and everything is not quite there. And I think if I'm you know, still studying infectious diseases, I think the, the, the mainland offers a bit more opportunity with that sort of stuff. But I might come back and work with the devils. You never know. Yeah, who knows where the future will take us, right? It's years in the future-ish, or yeah, at least yeah. a year. Um, yeah, I could see, I mean, I've not been to Tasmania, but I've been to Australia and like, you know, there's lots of big cities in Australia. I imagine that there are just more job opportunities in general in Tasmania on those sides, a bit smaller, so. Unfortunately, we are still quite uh, rural. Yeah, I could see all that. It's fine enough. It, it also depends on the other half of the equation, my partner, so. Like, ah yes we're still still working out visa stuff to get her over here at the moment so oh that's tough yeah it's the the joy of immigration systems it wouldn't it be just nice if it was easier to move around yeah and then during pandemic gosh like you know yeah. so many it's, it's gonna so be interesting going back to the uk post brexit i'm not i'm not sure if there's been too many huge heavy impacts at the moment but um we'll see by the time i arrive yeah, I mean, I feel like they don't even know what's going to happen yet. Or like, I feel like the balls are still rolling down the hill. Like, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see the, the flaming train carriages shortly, I'm sure. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, it sounds like. Um, from the outside, for me, it seems like not a particularly well thought out plan. So we'll see what happens. If, if at all, I would probably say, yes. If at all. Yeah, all yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's so, yeah, that's really cool. I don't really have any more questions. You seem interesting though, so I want to keep talking to you, but I've, I'm out. I, we've gone through all my okay, notes. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll think up one. Um, okay. Okay, seeing as we've, we've drifted into political territory, semi-political territory, um, how are you, do you see your sort of job prospects in science like going into the future in the new administration or potent, you know, potentially after? I think with the new U.S. administration that science on the whole will be valued more and so mm -hmm. that I think that there will be more funding available for all kinds of science, not just what I do, because the work I do is federally funded um, and that has been fairly stable over the years. Um, and I, But I think there'll be more money available for like medical research or whatever else that's been sort of like slashed and maybe also more like environmental regulations and monitoring stuff. It's, always, that, it's typically beneficial, yeah. Yeah, I think all that will rebound a bit. It seems like it would be more valued than it has been the last few years, mm. is how I'm gonna answer that. Yeah, sure. I did see, I think, the the designation of at least some some science chiefs on yeah. Twitter or something, it popped up. Who are so like, at least that's that's good. I'd like it if Australia took a, took a, hand, a leaf out of that book. Yeah, I feel like a little bit like the tide is turning. So like, as an example, the head of the Department of Interior, which runs like the Park Service and a bunch of other agencies, the Fish and Wildlife Service, um, is like an oil and gas executive right now. Um, and the new nominee is a Native American woman. I think she's from Arizona or New Mexico, but I'm not positive. Her name's Deb Holland. So I think that like, that's a really great step in the right direction from the totally wrong direction. So like stuff like that, I think is gonna make a big impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so hopefully that will be true and I won't be totally off base. 
Okay, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. That I guess that's that's probably the second half of my answer to the Australia question as well is what will funding look like in Australia at that time? I mean, yeah. we just got through the whole COVID pandemic and uh, not much has changed federally. And I think they actually stripped more money out of the science budget during the pandemic. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, guess, which is counterintuitive. Yeah, not that many prospects. Yeah. Maybe by the time that you're potentially looking to go back there, the tide will have <laughs> turned there as well. Yeah, we've got um, four years. That's that's time for another election in Australia. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah, I know. It's wild how much like things can swing though, right? Like, oh, things are going to be better in four years, but that's so far. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you never know with Australian politics because we tend to bounce around between our prime ministers. I'm not yeah. sure if you're familiar. I think we've had more more prime ministers than Italy over the past 10 years or something. Oh, that's, that's wild. Yeah, I don't know a ton about Australian politics, except that Australia is a lot more like the US than I originally thought um, in certain things. It's fair to say. I think that's yeah. fair to say. Things I just didn't wasn't aware of, but the, I've talked to a lot of Australians for the podcast and the more I talk to people from there, I'm I noticed. Like, I, I was expecting to hear a lot more US voices when I was listing and then kept on, and then even one, one who's from Tasmania just uh -huh. shining me out. I was completely floored by all this attention we're getting. Yeah, it's worldwide. We got to talk to everybody. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So I think it might be time for this if you're down for it. I am trying to end every 2021 um, episode with two questions, although we already kind of talked about both of them. So what I wanted to know was about your hobbies and that was one of them. So. Right. Okay. Yeah. We've kind of, we've, we've gone through that. Yeah. We, we talked about that a bit, unless you have any other hobbies you didn't mention earlier. Hmm. I, okay truth time truth time here we go i they had a special deal on google stadia which is like the new generation of video gaming they just like stream it to your chromecast so okay. i have been addicted to all the games that i have been putting off since i like graduated high school <laughs> because now i yeah i'd never had the time for that all throughout undergraduate so in the pandemic i've been catching up and playing all of the assassin's creeds that i have not played for a while and that is my guilty pleasure let's call it that yeah that seems like a really great escape though <laughs> like it is kind of, i guess i can i can choke it up as like i don't know learning some culture as flawed as it is through a video game but uh yeah there can be benefits and also you know you need an escape from reality sometimes whether it's a movie or a book or a video game yeah I, th I think that's what it's what it's been because usually I'm like the put on the Netflix or a podcast or something and then do my work at the same time but this actually I, it doesn't require focus but I, I do focus on it and then I just like can put it down after two hours and then go for another bike ride or something so it's been yeah. it's been good and kind of meditative I guess yeah I think that's great. I don't think you need to feel bad about it or anything. Everyone needs their outlets. Um, yeah. Okay. And the other question is, um, we talked about it a little bit, but like, what are you reading right now? If anything, it could be papers or books or whatever. Mm, okay. Well, this is drifting back to another topic we're going over politics, but I'm actually reading uh, socialism in Latin America. Um, I forget the author's name though. <sighs> Uh, Eric something yeah um, yeah very popular Latin American um, author on the subject of Latin American politics 
but my my girlfriend got that for me uh, for the Saint Jordi celebration in Barcelona uh, two years ago, I think, and I've finally actually gotten around to uh, to reading some proper chapters of it. So that's that's one thing I, I've been getting into, and the rest of the time I think it's just been science papers, unfortunately. Well, I mean, that makes sense, right? You're you're in grad school. <laughs> I feel like I didn't read for fun until like five years after grad school again, you know, because I was just like, nope, I'm done. I don't want to read anything. Um, I think it's, I think it's, well, going back to my guilty pleasure thing, I think it's like, I feel guilty for indulging my own hobbies and also guilty for avoiding them because I know I need me time now. So it's just like a double-edged sword against me at the moment. Oh, absolutely. I can totally understand that. Like when I was in grad school, like I would feel guilty for doing anything not work related that didn't like immediately benefit my existence, like eating or sleeping or showering, you know, like if I was doing mm -hmm. anything else besides like surviving and working, I felt guilty. And that's like unhealthy and unacceptable. Oh yeah. No, I was, I was precisely the same in undergrad and during my honors year for sure. Yeah. And I don't, I think part of it was just like, me being a hard worker and also like feeling like I was going to let people down if, you know, I took an afternoon off on a Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I get that. And I, I think that's, it's kind of the, the way the system is geared right. at the moment. Yeah. I think coming to Europe actually helped me a lot with that because there's a bit of a different like idea about the working week and everything, particularly starting with France, because that's, you know, one hour lunch break like minimum you, you don't you don't come back to the office before the end of that hour and um and you know you can start you know up to 15 minutes late it's not considered rude or anything so it's like yeah there's just a bit more i don't want to say laissez-faire that makes it sound too casual but it, it is sort of a, a more healthy like way of thinking about work i think yeah i think that's a good point about it being like systematic because in the u.s like if you're not working I'm thinking particularly like in academia, like if I wasn't working, I was slacking, even though I wasn't slacking because you need a break. Like otherwise you get burnt out or you just can't think straight. And how effective are you really going to be if you can't think straight? Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that's a problem. And I don't feel it so much in my work environment because it's like ebbs and flows on how busy I am. Like when I'm doing field work, I might be working 12 hour days every day or more for months on end. And then in the winter, I'm like, I'm done with work for today because I'm out of work. So I'm going to just take the rest of the week off. <laughs> you yep, know, because I, I think that's, yeah, yeah perfectly healthy. It's nice. And then to be able to have I guess there's the other side of that that, well, I used to be sort of dependent on was just like that constant pressure that kept me doing the work. So I actually got the work done and had something to talk about in the lab meeting or, or anything like that. And so that I appreciated that because it was just the, the sort of, the kick up the backside I needed to get going but now at this stage I'm like I don't I don't need to kick up the backside I will do the work in a timely manner it'll get done anyway yeah I'm the same way I don't really need someone like lording over me reminding me like I will get it done on my you know and it will be done on time and it'll be done right um mm -hmm. but some days I just don't want to work anymore that day <laughs> like you just get tired yeah, or burnt exactly. out and Particularly with working from home these days as well. I think it's yeah. just the, the, you get the, what is it? The, the screen strain and um, yeah, everything. It's, it's, it all adds up. Yeah. Which is probably why I'm drinking probably about, I don't know, four liters of green tea a day, I think at this point. Yeah. I drink so much tea right now, especially cause it's, you know, winter. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's a lot. All right. I'm going to have to look that book up cause it sounds interesting.
<laughs> it's called Viva la Revolucion. Okay. By Eric Hobsbawm. Okay. Yeah, I asked these two questions partly because I want to show that people in STEM are human and we have interests outside of whatever our work is. And so we have hobbies and maybe we read and maybe we don't because not everybody does and that's totally fine. But the book question is partly for me and a selfish thing because I'm always looking for new books to read. Well, because you, you seem to have exhausted your supply, I think, 138 books or something. That's, that's really- <laughs> Yeah, I wore the library out, let's just say that. <laughs> Yeah, well, so it has been so nice to meet you and talk to you and hear about everything you're doing. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure to come on. I mean, thank you for, for hosting and uh, and for, you know, keeping up all this prolific work you're doing, so. Oh, well, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, and it's also great to hear about, you know, how, what everyone else is doing, whether it's, you know, working in, uh, you know, in bats or working in marine science. Hey y'all, it's Rachel here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to have a quick reminder that if you or a friend or someone you think would be a good guest, if you have any people like that, let me know or send them my way in some way. Um, and how you can do that is you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. That's STEM with two M's. We also have a shiny new Twitter account for the podcast, so you can find the podcast on Twitter at Storytellers42. Yes, I'm a nerd. You can also email me, storytellersofstem at gmail.com, or you can find me and everything else on my website, rachelvelani.com. So you have loads of ways to get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, follow all the storytellers on Twitter since they're mostly all there, and just, you know, have a good day and thank you for listening.